the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back in studio. Took the day off yesterday and, well, I have to admit, I had a pretty good day. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we'll hear the best of Cy Gart, the works of his hands, a scientist's journey from atheism to faith. He'll be joining us in the five o'clock hour. Also today and tomorrow, we're going to be giving away Encourage conference tickets. We'll give you all the important details, but that's coming up this Friday and Saturday at Rolling Hills Church. It's a great conference. You're not going to want to miss, and we'll provide you with some details. We'll be giving them away, by the way, in the second hour of today's program. So heads up. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines from yesterday, Dow's, uh, Dow futures fell 1,200 points to start the week. Oil plunged 30 percent with fears following the spread of the coronavirus and the quarantine measures that are being taken. The major futures indexes are indicating a drop of almost 5 percent when trade begins on Wall Street. At one point, the stock fall triggered a halt in trading after a 5 percent drop. Well, Asian stock markets, and again, we're talking about Monday, plunged after global oil prices nosed dived on worries of global economy uh, weakened by the virus outbreak might be awash in too much crude. Tokyo's benchmark tumbled six points, while Hong Kong was down at least 3.8 percent. China's Shanghai comp- uh, composite was off 2.9 percent. Brent crude and international standard lost $12.28 or 27 percent to $33 per barrel in electronic trading in London. Benchmark U.S. crude fell $12.10 or 29.3 percent to $29.15. Well, the dramatic losses followed a 10.1% drop for U.S. oil on Friday, its biggest loss in over five years. Prices are falling as oil-producing countries argue how much to cut production to prop up prices. As the Wall Street Journal reported, specifically pointing to Saudi Arabia, which slashed prices for its benchmark crude after talks with Russia collapsed. Again, looking at news headlines from yesterday, the Grand Princess ship, which has been carrying about 3,500 people from 54 countries and languishing off the coast of Northern California since Thursday because of the coronavirus, uh, docked at the port of Oakland, California on Monday. American passengers on the Grand Princess will be transferred to military posts in California, Texas, and Georgia to be tested and kept for a mandatory 14-day quarantine. Federal health officials said on Sunday during a news conference with Governor Gavin Newsom, health and human service officials said nearly a 1,000 California residents on the ship will compete uh, to quarantine at the Travis Air Force um, base north of San Francisco and Marine Corps Air Station Miramar near San Diego. Residents of other states will compete for uh, the, the quarantine rather at Joint Base San Antonio Lackland in Texas or Dobbins Air Reserve Base in Georgia. Well, the official said all will be monitored uh, for symptoms of COVID-19, which is the official name of coronavirus. 
uh, from their quarantine, adding that crew members who tested positive for the virus would remain on ship. The Grand Princess has been some 12 to 12, uh, 10 to 12 miles offshore since Thursday. Of the 21 people infected aboard the ship, 19 crew members, 12 passengers had tested positive for COVID-19. And Dan... Um, Dan Savino, the director of social media at the White House, took to Twitter early Monday to deny the charge that he retweeted or a retweeted video that showed Joe Biden stumbling during a recent speech was manipulated. The video was retweeted by President Trump on Saturday. The clip showed Biden in Missouri. Biden is seen addressing a crowd and the video ends with the former vice president saying we can only reelect Donald Trump. Well, the video got the attention of Twitter. The social media giant marked the video with a manipulated media tag. TechCrunch reported it was the first time that the company took the step but unveiled the policy last month. Well, the report said that Biden's quote went further. Biden reportedly said we can only reelect Donald Trump if, in fact, we get engaged in this circular firing squad here. It's got to be a positive campaign. Senator Tred Cruz and Representative Paul Gosser self-quarantined after exposure to the coronavirus, uh, a patient at the CPAC National Conference. And uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders prepared uh, all day yesterday for the do-or-die fight in Michigan today. Kamala Harris, uh, uh, in her ironic endorsement of Joe Biden, has said she... um, We'll depose him no more. And the president announced Mark Meadows is going to replace Mike Mulvaney as the White House chief of staff. A record GOP voting enthusiasm has broken pattern, topping the Democrats in terms of voter turnout. Christopher Steele has refused to cooperate with John Durham for a review, according to the Washington Examiner. And Remain in Mexico, the program blocked by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in California and Arizona, has been put to a halt, at least for now. While major crimes in New York City unexpectedly surged after a bail reform law, what happens next will continue to follow. Now looking a little closer to home, today's news, Mark Meadows, the president's incoming White House chief of staff, may have come in contact with a coronavirus political action conference attendee who was diagnosed with the coronavirus and out of an abundance of caution, self-quarantine, and will do so over the next two weeks. Meadows' office said the, ninth, the North Carolina Republican tested negative for COVID-19 and has zero symptoms. He joins fellow Republican lawmakers, including Representatives Doug Collins of Georgia and Matt Gates of Florida, who said they were in contact with the same individual at CPAC. None are experiencing any symptoms. Well, Gates was spotted riding on Air Force One last week as he learned the news. White House officials said when Gates learned he was in proximity to the man with coronavirus at CPAC, he sat uh, uh, by himself in a section of the president's plane. The president and vice president spoke at CPAC, but the White House said there was no indication that either had met or been in close proximity to the infected attendee. The number of individuals who were in contact with the individual has raised concerns about whether the president was exposed. Stephanie Grisham, the White House spokeswoman, said uh, President Trump has not taken a COVID-19 test because he did not have prolonged close contact with any patients. She also said that he has no symptoms but will be closely monitored by his physician. And underscoring what's at stake for his White House bid when Michigan and five other states hold the Democratic presidential nomination contest today, Senator Bernie Sanders emphasizes that this is a very, very important day in Michigan. He did well last time. How will he do this time? Well, speaking in front of more than 10,000 people at a rally at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, the populist senator from Vermont said on Sunday 
Uh, he spotlighted that Michigan's the most important state to hold a contest on March the 10th, which is being dubbed Mini Super Tuesday or Super Tuesday 2.0. With 125 pledged delegates at stake, Michigan is the biggest prize among the six states holding contests today. The others are Missouri, Mississippi, Washington State, Idaho, and North Dakota. For Joe Biden, he has two main goals today, cement his own frontrunner status and keep his momentum going just a week after resurrecting his White House bid with a delegate victory on Super Tuesday. The former vice president has courted Michigan's African-American voters alongside the two leading black former 2020 rivals, Senators Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. For Sanders, he has to show that he can turn things around in his campaign as the Democratic establishment continues to coalesce behind his rival, Joe Biden. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour of the program, we'll hear from Cy Garth. The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. Also in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to give away some tickets to Encourage Gathering. It's a women's conference. It's coming up this weekend, Friday and Saturday, the 13th and 14th at Rolling Hills Community Church. This is a one-of-a-kind uh, event. It's a gathering where they explore what what it means to be rooted in grace, live loved, and love others well, integrating biblical, clinical, and relational wisdom to transform our lives. That's coming up this weekend. And again, we've got, we're going to be giving away a ticket for the conference today and again tomorrow. So listen up for your opportunity to win. Well, the Trump campaign has sent a scathing letter to Twitter's leadership after the platform took the unprecedented step of labeling one of his videos manipulated media, saying that under the social media giant's new standard, Joe Biden's team has uploaded its own doctored and deceptively edited video as recently as last week. Back and forth it goes. The Biden campaign is scared as expletive that voters will see the flood of unedited and embarrassing verbal stumbles that will continue uh, to go viral if status quo Joe is is uh, the nominee. He, the Trump campaign um, responded to the director, Andrew Clark, uh, in response to their decision, Twitter shouldn't be an enforcement arm of Joe Biden's campaign strategy. But if they choose to police every video clip, they must hold his own campaign to the same standard, end quote. Well, the confrontation began this weekend when the Trump uh, communications director tweeted an edited version of a Biden speech in which the former vice president appears to deliver a muddled and inadvertent endorsement of Trump. The clip, which the president later reposted, didn't alter any of Biden's words, but it cut off before the conclusion of Biden's sentence at the rally in St. Louis. Well, global markets have picked up after the epic plunge on Monday, during which the Wall Street uh, had its largest drop in 12 years. And Congress began to map out an economic response to the virus outbreak. We'll talk more about that in the program. The president has met his Hurricane Katrina media declare for the umpteenth time. And journalists argue um, that the use of the term uh, Wuhan virus is racist. Chinese propagandists are stoking the theory that the coronavirus originated in the United States. Seven things to watch in the Tuesday's primaries. We'll talk about that later in the program as all eyes are on Sanders in and Michigan, as well as the former vice president. And Politico has uncovered allegations of suspicious business dealings involving Joe Biden's brother. Montana Governor Steve Bullock has entered Montana's Senate race and U.S. troops began Afghanistan withdrawal as part of the peace deal with the Taliban, although the beginning of the end seems to to be moving in. Uh, armored um, cars, robots, and coal. North Korea defies a U- the U.S. rather by evading sanctions. Apparently they're not sincere. 
On this day in history, in 1969, James Earl Ray pleads guilty in Memphis, Tennessee, to assassinating Martin Luther King Jr. Ray later would retract that plea, maintaining his innocence until his death in 1998. 1496 on this day in history, Christopher Columbus concludes his second visit to the Western Hemisphere as he leaves Hispaniola for Spain. 1848, the U.S. Senate ratifies the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ends the Mexican-American War. On this day in history, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell's assistant, Thomas Watson, hears Bell say over his experimental telephone, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. From the next room of Bell's Boston Laboratory. Finally, on this day in history, 1913, Harriet Tubman, former slave abolitionist and underground railroad conductor, dies in Auburn, New York. What a remarkable story hers is. Well, Democratic primary voters have gone to the polls for the first time since Super Tuesday on Tuesday, March the 10th in six states, including the state of Washington. Those voters will be faced with a race that's taken an Dramatically different, well, sharp turn, different shape in the past two weeks after Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Mike Bloomberg all dropped out of the race to endorse former Vice President Joe Biden before Elizabeth Warren also suspended her campaign, though she has not endorsed anyone yet. Biden has the momentum following a dominating win in South Carolina and a Super Tuesday romp that included victories in 10 states. He leads Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and delegates 664 to 573 as of Monday morning, with Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard, the only other uh, candidate yet to suspend her campaign. She's uh, just two uh, total delegates. Voters on the 10th of this month will uh, uh, assign 9% of the total delegates to the Democratic National Convention, meaning 53% of the total available delegates will still lie ahead. Well, here are the states that are going to the polls. Idaho has 20 delegates. Sanders has performed well in other northwestern states, including Colorado and Utah, but with 1,991 delegates needed to clinch the Democratic nomination, Idaho is not likely to play a major role in deciding who gets to face President Trump in November. Michigan, that's the cash cow, if you will, 125 delegates. Michigan is the largest available prize for candidates on the 10th. Sanders' 2016 win there helped him extend his primary battle against Hillary Clinton. But Biden's Super Tuesday win in nearby Minnesota may be a positive indicator for the former vice president. Mississippi, 36 delegates at stake, a state with a large African-American population. The former vice president's win in similarly diverse South Carolina suggests that Sanders may face an uphill battle for delegates in Mississippi. Missouri has 68 delegates. Again, these are the states that are casting ballots today. Biden won neighboring Tennessee and Arkansas and Tennessee on Super Tuesday. But Missouri has larger metropolitan areas that may favor Sanders. North North Dakota, rather, 14 delegates, also a potential fertile ground for Sanders, given his wins in Colorado and Utah. North Dakota offers the smallest collection of delegates available on the 10th, well, today. Um, And finally, the state of Washington with 89 delegates. Sanders will likely need to perform well there, which offers the second biggest delegate prize available today to avoid ceding more momentum to the former vice president. Well, former Vice President Joe Biden holds a double digit lead over Senator Bernie Sanders on the eve of the uh, uh, primary, according to a new poll in the state with the, the most delegates up for grabs among 
Tuesday's Democratic presidential nomination contests. The former vice president tops Sanders 51 percent to 36 percent among likely Democratic presidential primary voters in Michigan. That's according to the Monmouth University survey that was released yesterday. The poll was conducted on Thursday through Sunday, entirely after uh, Biden's sweeping victories last week on Super Tuesday when he won 10 of the 14 state contests that were held and took a roughly 90 delegate lead over Mr. Sanders. With 125 pledge delegates at stake, Michigan is the biggest prize among the six states holding the Tuesday uh, primary. Uh, primaries rather Biden leads Sanders by 14 points among the among white voters in Michigan and top Sanders by 17 percent among non-white voters. The former vice president crushed the populist lawmakers and self-described Democratic socialists by 38 points among voters 50 years and over, while Sanders holds an 11 point advantage among those under the age of 50. Biden holds a 20 point lead among female voters with men pulling for Sanders by 10 points. Sanders, who's making his second straight presidential run, defeated eventual nominee Hillary Clinton in 2016's primary in Michigan in what was considered an upset win. That foreshadowed Clinton's narrow loss to Donald Trump in the November 2016 general election in Michigan. Trump's victory with working class white voters in the state, as well as similar narrow wins in two other crucial Rust Belt states, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, propelled him to the White House. The delegate hall and political symbolism in Michigan make it an undisputed prize today. Biden appears to have the advantage because he's doing well among some groups that Sanders won four years ago. But as we learned in 2016, Michigan can defy expectations. So anything can happen. And uh, all eyes are poised there now uh, to see who will be will emerge the victor. Well, underscoring what's at stake for his White House bid when Michigan and five other states hold their uh, primaries. Senator Sanders emphasized that this is a very, very important day in Michigan. Speaking in front of 10,000 people at a rally at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, the populist senator from Vermont said on Sunday he spotlighted Michigan as the most important state to hold a contest, which is being dubbed Mini Super Tuesday or Super Tuesday 2.0, with 125 Pledge delegates at stake. It's a big deal for both candidates. Democratic presidential candidate uh, Sanders and Biden both canceled their their planned election night rallies uh, tonight in Ohio with the coronavirus fears. The Sanders campaign announced the cancellation of their rally first, which was slated to take place in Cleveland, Ohio. Out of concern for the public and the public's health and safety, we are canceling tonight's rally in Cleveland, the Sanders campaign said in a statement, we are heeding the public warnings from Ohio state officials who have communicated concern about holding large indoor events during the coronavirus outbreak. The former vice president uh, followed suit some hours later. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Stay with us. We'll be giving away a conference tickets to encourage the conference coming up this Friday and Saturday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, two more Republican lawmakers, GOP representatives Doug Collins of Georgia and Matt Gates of Florida, revealed on Monday they had contact with the coronavirus at the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, an attendee who has since been diagnosed with the coronavirus, saying they're not experiencing symptoms but will self-quarantine out of an abundance of caution. Both Collins and Gates uh, are pro-Trump Republicans who have been with the president since CPAC. Collins shook Trump's hand and joined him for a visit to uh, CDC in Atlanta on Friday. He also met with Trump at the White House last Tuesday. Several 
days after the conference. President Trump was greeting him off and on throughout that period. Well, uh, Representative Gates was spotted riding on Air Force One on Monday as he learned the news. White House officials said that when he learned he was uh, in proximity to a man with the virus at CPAC, he sat by himself in a section of the president's plane. Uh, that makes four Republican lawmakers who have said they're, they interacted rather with the CPAC attendee who tested positive for COVID-19. After announcements uh, over the last day from Senator uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Arizona Representative Paul Gosar, Cruz's office released an update on the senator saying he feels fine. Senator Cruz feels great, has not exhibited any symptoms of the coronavirus in the last 11 days, and is not currently experiencing any symptoms. Well, Collins said on Monday it was a uh, photograph that led CPAC to determine his interaction with the sick attendee, saying this afternoon I was notified that they discovered a photo of myself and uh, the patient who has, I don't know why you say myself, but that's another thing. Anyway, who was tested positive for the virus. So he self-quarantined, as did the others. Well, Gates' office said he planned to close his Washington office as he awaited test results. Congressman Gates was informed today that he came in contact uh, with the attendee 11 days ago who tested positive. I read the tweet from that congressman. Uh, going on to say that while the congressman is not experiencing symptoms, he received testing today and expects results soon. Well, under doctors' uh, usual precautionary recommendations, he remains self-quarantined until the 14-day period expires this week. Well, the attending physician for the U.S. Capitol acknowledged on Monday that the patient had contact with several members of Congress at CPAC. In a statement on Monday, Dr. Brian Monahan said that the individual who has been diagnosed with the virus was able to recall specific names of people he had contact with during the meeting. Three senior members of Gosar's staff are also self-quarantined, the lawmaker has said. Well, last week, Gates got attention for wearing a gas mask on the White House floor and in the Capitol building, the White House Uh, was made aware of the CPAC attendees' diagnosis as both Trump and the vice president attended and spoke at the conference, which took place the 26th and 29th of last month. Uh, Meanwhile, the president has downplayed the threat of the coronavirus on Monday, noting that the common flu kills thousands of Americans each year and that life uh, and the economy go on. So last year, 37,000 Americans died from the common flu uh, it averages between 27 and 70,000 per year, he tweeted. Nothing is shut down. Life and the economy go on. At this moment, there are 546 confirmed cases of the virus with 22 deaths in the U.S. Think about that. Well, President uh, Trump announced on Monday evening that he will uh, push Congress for a payroll tax cut to stem concerns about the coronavirus that sent the stock market into a spiral earlier in the day. He also pledged that he would push for hourly wage earners to be able to take off work without fear of losing their jobs as the number of related U.S. deaths rose to 26, all but four in Washington state. The president said he would give more details on Tuesday after meeting with members of Congress. They met, but not many details have yet been released. We're going to be seeing the Senate and meeting with the House uh, House Republicans and discussing possible uh, payroll tax relief. The president said at the White House, flanked by members of the administration's coronavirus task force, headed by the vice president, Mike Pence. We're going to go. uh, We're going to be talking about hourly wage earners getting help so that they can be in a position where they are not going to miss a paycheck. We're going to be working with small companies, large companies, so that they don't get penalized for something that's not their fault. Well, the number of confirmed cases in the U.S. jumped to 600, spanning 30 states and the District of Columbia, California, and Florida, each confirmed two deaths. 
According to USA Today, around the world, the coronavirus has infected 108,000, killing more than 3,800. And that's according to CNN. The president said his administration is handling the crisis very well, noting travel restrictions uh, he said never were imposed before. We've never done this in our country before. We could have uh, had a situation uh, a lot more dire, but uh, suggests that those decisions prevented that from happening. Meanwhile, the 2020 Tokyo Olympics are a little over four months away, and Olympic officials are already making some adjustments to keep fans and athletes safe over the coronavirus concerns. On Monday, Greece's Olympic Committee announced that the torchlight ceremony uh, being held at the site of ancient Olympia uh, on Thursday will take place without fans or spectators present. Not quite the same experience. Only 100 accredited guests I think that was supposed to be guests from the International Olympic Committee and the Tokyo 2020 Organizing Committee will be allowed at the event. The statement read, adding that the number of media members given credentials will be extremely limited as well. It's not only the event itself that will close the door to the public, as Wednesday's dress rehearsal will also take place without anyone in the seats. After the ceremony, the torch will go on a week-long journey that will lead up to a handover ceremony on the 19th of this month in Greece. Following the handover ceremony, the torch will fly to Japan. The coronavirus outbreak is causing many nations and leagues to alter their sporting events plans. The Olympics has been one major event that's been impacted greatly, with many athletes not able to attend qualifying meets and concerns over whether the games will go on as scheduled, with or without spectators. Closing doors to fans is not a new concept. Many leagues and tournaments around the globe are using the tactic to prevent the complete shutdown of events while also keeping the public safe. Uh, Interestingly, um, March Madness, they're considering some of the NBA games and some of the other games uh, to be played without, (coughs) excuse me, without spectators. So it will be interesting to see what impact this is likely to have moving forward. Well, these were the headlines uh, from the last couple of days with regard to the Dow. U.S. equity markets tumbled on Monday after an oil uh, price uh, war broke out between Saudi Arabia and Russia. New cases of coronavirus, especially in America. The Dow industrial average closed over 2,000 points lower coming back from a a point drop of more than 2,150 points. The next day, uh, which would be today, President Trump tells Americans to be calm and says the U.S. consumer is strong despite the coronavirus, and the U.S. equity markets ebbed and flowed throughout the day before breaking away with the Dow Jones Industrial Average, adding 1,167 points, clawing back from a deficit. Well, the Dow's uh, point gain was the third best on record, The S&P 500 and NASDAQ composite also rallied, uh, tacking on nearly 5%. Investors were encouraged after the president backed very substantial relief for the area of the economy hardest hit by the new coronavirus outbreak. He said Tuesday he had a great meeting with Senate Republicans and that there's a great feeling about doing a lot of things. Fairly vague. Uh, This followed his remarks on Monday, saying we are going to um, take care of and have been trying to take care of the American public and the American economy He said at a White House uh, press briefing. So the numbers have fluctuated depending on the mood of the hearers of comments made by the president and others. New York uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced on Monday that Rick Cotton, head of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, has tested positive for the virus. We'll tell you more about that in a few moments. And Italy has expanded its travel restrictions to cover the whole country as the coronavirus there, the outbreak, worsens. 
And Greg Laurie says that uh, as the fears mount, we need to remember faith's role in the face of uncertainty. We'll get into all of that when we come back from the the, uh, break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder, coming up in the second hour, Cy Gart will be my guest. The Works of His Hands, a scientist's journey from atheism to faith. We'll also give away tickets to Encourage. It's a gathering of women coming up this weekend. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, we'll talk with um, Cy Gart, the works of his hands, the scientist's journey from atheism to faith. And we'll be giving away some tickets to encourage the conference. It's a gathering of women that's coming up this Friday and Saturday. So if you're looking for something extraordinary to do, you might want to check that out. By the way, you can go to the website, Encourage Gathering, and that's spelled with an I, Encourage Gathering. Dot com. Well, New York City Mayor, um, or I should say Governor Andrew Cuomo, there's a big difference between a governor and a mayor. Anyway, New York uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced on Monday that Rick Cotton, the head of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, tested positive for the virus and would be working from home. He said that Cotton's staff will also undergo testing. Now, we hear that someone contracts the virus and immediately there's a sense of panic. Um, but there are certain things that we know. If you have pre-existing conditions that render you vulnerable, you're more likely to have uh, a negative and, and difficult um, recovery. But for someone who is healthy, it's less likely that it's going to be a serious and debilitating diagnosis or fatal. Cuomo himself said that he has not been tested, but that he uh, could have contacted Cotton at some point. Uh, you want to prioritize who you test because you're looking for the positive, he says. I'm not a probable positive. You are looking to test the probable positive. Well, Cuomo made the announcement after unveiling New York State made um, hand sanitizers and cleaning solutions, which he said are stronger than those currently available on the market. The sanitizer is being produced by um, Corecraft, which is uh, run by the Division of Correctional Institutions. An official said inmates at Great Meadow Correctional Facility were producing the product. The governor also said that the number of COVID-19 cases in the state had risen to 142, surpassing the number of confirmed illnesses in the in the state of Washington. The majority of cases have occurred in Westminster, Westchester uh, County, where several schools have been closed in an effort to stifle the outbreak. Officials said that they were uh, working on a decision regarding closing public schools surrounding the outbreak hotspots and according to with rather CDC guidelines to prevent further spread of the outbreak. Some schools have uh, closed with for a thorough cleaning. Um, However, uh, that decision has not been made there. Uh, It has been made in some other localities. Meanwhile, Italy's prime minister announced uh, Monday evening that he was expanding restrictions on travel to cover the entire country in an unprecedented peacetime move to try to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Giuseppe Conti said that a new government decree will require all Italians to meet a limited set of criteria, such as a need to work or health conditions in order to travel outside the area where they live. There won't be just a red zone, Conti told reporters. There will be Italy. Well, Italy registered 1,807 more confirmed cases as of Monday evening for a national total of 9,172, the most cases of the virus outside China. The number of dead in Italy also um, increased from 97 to 463. Well, early Sunday, Conti signed a decree attempting to lock down 16 million people in Italy's, Italy's uh, prosperous north, including the entire um, Lombardy region and 14 provinces uh, in uh, in around the country until the 3rd of April. 
Well, Greg Laurie, uh, in pondering the coronavirus and the fears that uh, surround this whole epidemic, pandemic, we're not really sure. He encourages folks to remember faith's role in the face of uncertainty. And there is a great deal of uncertainty about uh, what this is all about. As for myself, I'm not too concerned about contracting the virus. I would very likely survive. But my 89-year-old mother, I'm very careful about um, where she's going and making sure that things are um, well thought through for her. But he suggests that people of faith, we need to do at least three things. We have to take this threat seriously. Uh, many doctors uh, have uh, suggested that um, po- uh, people who are sick should avoid touching their eyes, nose, mouth. Again, very practical. Stay home when you're sick. Wash your hands consistently. Don't shake hands with others, etc. If you can avoid any unnecessary travel, especially overseas to regions where the virus is spread, the CDC has published a helpful prevention guide, which you can reference for tips on how to protect yourself and your family and so on. So be practical, but also be prayerful. This can't be emphasized enough right now. We need to call out to a God Almighty and ask for divine intervention to protect our country and its citizens. We need to pray for those who are infected, that the Lord would touch them. We need to pray for everyone who is on the front lines of this pandemic, those who, those healthcare workers who are serving those who are ill, from medical professionals who are caring for patients, to Vice President Pent, HUD Secretary Ben Carson, others who are tasked with responding to this crisis. Some have mocked and criticized um, uh, the Vice President for praying with his team for a solution, but that's the first thing we need to do whenever faced with a challenge of this magnitude, and we need to uh, join him in that. Of course, he was praying for wisdom and direction and how to uh, take on the role that was given to him by the president. Well, regardless of your political persuasion, this is not a time for partisan bickering, but for us to pray and work together to fight this virus that knows no boundaries. COVID-19 transcends race and gender and party. We need to pull together, work together, and pray together. Finally, we need to be prepared. There are two ways we need to be prepared for this uh, potential virus. The first is to be practically prepared in case of an emergency, stock up on groceries and items like sanitizers and, if possible, set aside an emergency fund for unexpected expenses. Again, this is uh, for those who are most vulnerable. We also need to be prepared spiritually for the threat. Crises such as uh, these put life in perspective. Um, maybe uh, you grew up in church and walked away from your faith, or maybe you never considered God at all. Well, right now is a time to do just that. Christ died on a cross some 2,000 years ago for you and me to give us hope and life, not only for now, but for eternity. And if we turn to him, we can confidently replace fear with faith. I'm reminded of uh, Christians from Wuhan who early on when this uh, outbreak began uh, decided that they were going to serve their neighbors and made themselves available to provide supplies. Um, They provided tracks for people who were looking for spiritual comfort and uh, to hear the gospel, and they took full advantage of the opportunity to be a blessing in their community. And perhaps we can seek those same opportunities, beginning with prayer and then looking for uh, wisdom moving forward. Meanwhile, Dr. George Diaz, the section chief of the infectious diseases at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett, Washington, uh, said on Sunday that most patients infected with the coronavirus can recover at home and don't need to be hospitalized, saying that most folks that are infected with this virus will have a mild disease, won't need to come to a hospital, won't have to be admitted. Those people are at low risk. They 
Uh, there's really not much at this point that needs to be done for them in terms of staying at home while they're ill. He oversaw the treatment of the first U.S. patient diagnosed with a coronavirus in the state of Washington after returning from a trip to China. The patient has since been released from the hospital and spent the rest of his recovery in isolation at home. With 18 reported deaths in the state of Washington, he said that he and his team have been working on making the proper distinction between those infected who were at low risk and could recover at home and those who are at high risk, such as infected patients with underlying medical issues or patients over the age of 60. Uh, there is a distinction that we're making in terms of risk assessment for those who are at risk of a severe disease. We're working to um, uh, working on triaging those groups of folks so that they uh, we're keeping a close eye on the people who present uh, for testing to make sure that we keep track of them. He went on to say we're plugging them into uh, our um, telehealth program so that we can monitor oxygen levels at home, uh, their vital signs to make sure that they don't have a, a decline. And that includes folks over the age of 60 or who have other medical problems uh, that may put them at risk. Uh, Mr. Dr. Diaz also said that medical professionals have not been able to identify why older people or those with Compromised immune systems have been at higher risk than they uh, would if uh, they were fighting a seasonal case of the flu. It is a respiratory illness, and that may at least explain in part. But he did say we do know when they become infected, many of them end up in the hospital and ICUs, and the mortality seems to be quite high in that patient population. That's what we're seeing at least locally, probably worse than what we usually see in the flu season in this uh, particular population. Why that is, they don't know. Um, They're trying to understand, but not quite yet. Well, Dr. Diaz also echoed the statement from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advising the public against wearing surgical masks throughout everyday life, saying the CDC has been very clear that the average person walking the street is very low risk in general and is not advised to buy and or wear masks out and about. In fact, they can make things worse. Well, the Army on Sunday suspended travel for all soldiers and their families to and from South Korea due to concerns about the fast-spreading virus. The travel ban will be in effect through May the 6th, according to U.S. Forces Korea. There are 28,500 U.S. troops stationed in South Korea. USFK, which is uh, what this unit is uh, called, is aware of the Department of the Army's order to stop movement for all Army soldiers and family members moving to or from South Korea or soldiers scheduled to attend professional military education in the United States due to the COVID-19 concerns. We are analyzing the impacts. Well, if if this, uh, speaking to those uh, to whom the directive is given, If it applies to you, immediately contact your chain of command for further instructions. The command said uh, the 8th Army, the USFK, will identify and work with all soldiers and families affected, especially those who are already uh, had their furniture and vehicles packed and shipped to minimize and lessen the impacts on their well-being. The health and welfare of our service members and their families continues to be our top priority. There are, by the way, seven U.S. forces, Korea-related personnel, who have become infected with the coronavirus, including one Army soldier. Overall, three U.S. service members worldwide have contracted the virus, including a sailor in Italy and a Marine outside of Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. During this hour, we'll hear from Cy Gart, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. That's coming up 
for our next two segments. Also, as promised, I want to give away uh, tickets to Encourage. It's a gathering of women that's coming up this Friday and Saturday. Uh, It's a very unique, one-of-a-kind women's gathering, exploring what it means to be rooted in grace, to live loved, and to love others well, integrating biblical, clinical, and relational wisdom to transform lives. You can find out all the important details at Encourage. Um, gathering.com. And um, in fact, you only have until Thursday, I believe, to register. So check that out. It's going to be a, a magnificent conference and the lineup of speakers is very uh, impressive. Uh, every ticket includes four relevant sessions with uh, messages by courageous women rooted in grace. Uh, there are three relevant breakout sessions for you to customize. Uh, lunch is available. There'll be snacks and coffee. You know, we got to have our stuff. A signed copy of Courageous Being Daughters Rooted in Grace, the book about uh, that this conference was inspired by, and many more surprises. Uh, you'll be lavished with love at this conference. And we want to give away a pair of tickets to Encourage 2020, this two day women's conference at Rolling Hills Community Church this Friday night and Saturday. We want to give uh, these tickets away to caller number three, 800-845-2162. Uh, so pick up your phone, give us a call, caller number three, a pair of tickets to Encourage 2020, again, a two-day women's conference at Rolling Hills Community Church. President Trump on Monday evening said that he will um, be meeting with congressional leaders uh, today to press them about What can be done to help the economy as it struggles with the coronavirus outbreak? Now, that meeting took place. Not many details were made public, although in a press conference with the vice president uh, in which they were discussing the coronavirus, there were efforts to try to discover what the uh, what some of the details are. And not every Republican is immediately on board. The president said that he plans uh, to meet and did with Senate leadership uh, to discuss a payroll tax. That's on Wednesday. I should uh, should say a payroll tax cut, small business aid and help for hourly workers who might become sick. They'll be very dynamic, he said, of the proposed economic measures during an evening briefing at the White House. This blindsided the world, and I think we handled it very well. Well, the president told reporters that the administration was seeking very substantial relief. Treasury Secretary uh, Steve Mnuchin and director of the National Economic Council, Larry Kudlow, we're expected to make the request of Senate Republicans uh, this afternoon. Well, the markets appeared to react positively to the president's announcement with futures on all three major indices uh, surging by more than 2%, as I mentioned in the first hour. The president was joined in the White House briefing room by Vice President Pence and the rest of the coronavirus task force. They praised his administration's work in combating the virus, including prohibiting entry into the U.S. from certain countries and coordinating with state governors and reiterated that the spread of the virus wasn't caused by mismanagement within Washington. This is not our country's fault. This was something that uh, was thrown at us. The main thing is we're taking care of the American public. Well, before his press conference, uh, the president met Mnuchin and Kudlow and other aides about a range of economic actions, which presumably we will hear about in more detail in the not-too-distant future. We'll certainly continue to follow that story. Well, in other news, the D.C. Court of Appeals on Tuesday upheld a ruling that allows House Democrats to view secret grand jury information from Robert Mueller's Russia probe that had been redacted from that report. The court's uh, two to one decision agreed with the lower court that the House Judiciary Committee can obtain the information for impeachment investigations of the president under an exception for judicial proceedings per the federal rules of 
criminal procedure. Well, because that exception encompasses impeachment proceedings and the committee has established a particularized need for the grand jury materials, the order of the district court is affirmed. Judge Judith Rogers wrote in the court's opinion. Well, the lower court had claimed that precedent supported the idea that an impeachment trial is akin to a judicial proceeding, citing a case that allowed the disclosure of grand jury materials for the impeachment investigation of President Richard Nixon. Rogers, the judge, noted that the exception to the grand jury secrecy rule applies in cases preliminary to or in connection with a judicial proceeding and that the party requested it must um, requesting it rather must show a particularized need. The Department of Justice argued that the precedent the lower court cited was not binding, but the D.C. Circuit disagreed. The, the Circuit Court also agreed that the lower court properly used its discretion in determining that the possibility of new articles of impeachment stemming from the grand jury materials satisfied the requirement for a particularized need. The court's ruling also noted that the lower court properly concluded that the need to keep the information secret is reduced by the committee's adoption of special protocols to restrict access to the grand jury materials in order to maintain their secrecy. The Department of Justice opposing the House Democrats argued that because Trump had already been impeached and acquitted by the time the court was to rule, there was no longer a basis for the committee needing the information. The committee responded by claiming that their investigation was still continuing and that new articles of impeachment remained a possibility. Department of Justice uh, has the option of now either petitioning uh, for the case to be reheard by the entire D.C. Circuit in an en blanc hearing or immediately appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. The department is yet to comment or rather yet to comment on its next step. And spokesperson Carrie Kupik uh, said the Department of Justice is reviewing the decision. So in the minds of members of the House of Representatives, the possibility of a uh, another impeachment of the president looms large. President Trump made a surprise announcement on Friday night that Representative Mark Meadows will become his new White House chief of staff. He's replacing acting uh, chief of staff Mike Mulvaney. I'm pleased, the president said, to announce that Congressman Mark Meadows will become White House chief of staff. I have long known and worked with Mark And the relationship is a very good one, the president tweeted. I have to wonder if when the president announces that he's appointing someone to uh, take on a post, if there's not just a little streak of fear that will this relationship hold? Will it end well? Will the president turn and uh, be critical openly? So, I mean, it's an honor to be uh, suggested for the post. But I do wonder if uh, fear strikes the hearts of those who are called To take it on, Meadows has become one of Trump's most loyal defenders on Capitol Hill, particularly during the months long impeachment battle that ultimately ended with an acquittal in February. But that apparently is not the end of the story, as we've just heard. Mulvaney became the acting White House chief of staff in January of last year, replacing General John Kelly. Mulvaney was also serving as the the Office of Management and Budget Director. Trump also announced that Mulvaney would become the U.S. Special Envoy for Northern Ireland. I want to thank Acting Chief Mick Mulvaney for having uh, served the administration so well. He will become the United States Special Envoy for Northern Ireland. Thank you, Trump said in a second tweet. Well, in a statement, Meadows said it was an honor to be selected by the president. His president and his administration have a long list of incredible victories they've delivered to the country. And he went on from there. Meadows said Mulvaney did a great job, and he also thanked his constituents in Western North Carolina. In particular, I want to recognize my friend Mick Mulvaney. Mick is smart, principled, and as tough a fighter 
uh, you'll find in Washington, D.C. He did a great job leading the president's team through a tremendous period of accomplishment over the last year plus. Well, a source familiar with the situation says that Mulvaney is expected to resign from the Office of Management Budget and Budget. Uh, Ross Voigt is widely viewed as the nominee to be confirmed by the Senate as his successor to that position. All right, we're going to take a break uh, here, and uh, when we return, you'll hear from Cy Gart. He is a scientist and the author of The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Here's the question. How does one go from an avowed atheist to a person of faith? Well, in his new release, The Works of His Hands, biochemist and author Cy Gart He takes readers on a personal journey from being raised in a militant atheist family to that of a fully committed follower of Jesus, a Christian. And while he had no intention to believe in God, as a student and early in his career, the science that he loved led him to question his worldview. In fact, he says, and I'm quoting, my scientific knowledge had made me doubt my atheistic upbringing and I was ready and waiting, but not yet a believer. Then one day while I was driving on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, The Holy Spirit took hold of me. I pulled over, wept, and thanked the Lord for his mercy. Well, the book is titled The Work of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And my guest, Dr. Cy Garth, is a biochemist and has been a professor at New York University, University of Pittsburgh, and Rutgers University. He has authored over 200 scientific publications and four previous books and has served as division director at the National Institutes of Health. He is also editor-in-chief of God and Nature Magazine and vice president of the Washington in D.C. chapter of the American Scientific Affiliation. He is a lay leader at the United Methodist Church, and he joins us today to talk about his book, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, you um, uh, write in your book that um, your own salvation came through the understanding that the natural world and its description by science is a strong witness to God's existence and majesty. Can you explain a little of what you mean by that, given the fact that you were a scientist for much longer um, before you came to recognize God's hand uh, at work, as the, the title of your book suggests? Yes. Well, I, I was, I actually still am an, a scientist. I've been a scientist uh, my whole adult life. But I was also an atheist, and as you mentioned in your introduction, I was brought up in a very militant atheist family. Uh, and taught that not only should we not believe in God, but that the idea of God is impossible, and religion, in particular Christianity, are evil and, you know, should be avoided. So that was my my original upbringing, and it was a long journey to get from there to where I am today. Uh, And as as also was in the introduction, uh, the first part of that journey involved the science I was learning, which was uh, going against the strong materialist views of how the world is that I had been taught as as a youth and uh, was opening up a lot of questions in my mind about that kind of atheist dogma that I was learning. And when I began probing into those questions, I found myself rejecting that kind of strong atheism and ended up more or less as an agnostic. I really wasn't sure what to believe. You describe your journey as long and winding and say that you write the, you wrote the book 
more as a guide to the perplexed for people of faith or uh, open-minded atheists who wish to embrace the modern world of science and technology and enjoy the intellectual and emotional beauty of science without giving up any part of their equally beautiful and soul-enriching faith in God. Talk a bit about who you want to reach and and your approach in sharing not only your journey, but uh, what you learned along the way. Yeah, I... I had a very specific audience in mind when I wrote this book, and that is uh, that audience would be anyone who, especially Christians, who are uh, wondering about their faith and who have been told by the media and by the very strident voices of new atheism that you have to choose between God and science. You have to choose between your faith. You might have been brought up in a, in a, in a very devout Christian household, and then you go to college and you learn uh, about biology and physics and evolution, and you, you, you know, get the idea either from professors or from pastors or both that you can't have both. You have to choose one or the other because Science and Christianity are in conflict, and the whole goal of of my work, and I'm not alone, there are many of us Mm -hmm. trying to do the same thing, is to show that that is a myth, that the conflict between science and Christian faith is is not real. It's, uh, It's made up. And it is, it's easily destroyed as soon as you actually know enough about science and enough about the truth of Christianity. You divide the book into two parts. In the, in the first part, you focus a lot on, on, on your experience, your quest for knowledge that brought you to question your materialist assumptions and some of the larger questions that I think are, are familiar to many of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I start out talking about uh, a little bit about physics. I, I will say there's a lot of science at the beginning of the book, but it's not. It's it's very accessible mm-hmm. to non-scientists. So, uh, don't readers should not be worried about that. Uh, but I do talk about some of the very strange results of modern physics, which are, you know are not the kinds of things we learn in high school about inclined planes and and pulleys and things, but very complex stuff about atoms and and electrons and particles. And when you get into that level, it turns out that physics is not terribly rational. There are all kinds of seemingly magical things that go on in when you're talking about how, you know, electrons can be both particles and waves at the same time and all kinds of other things that just don't make a lot of sense in our minds, but they're true. And when I learned about that, and that's, as I said, that's the first chapter there. Uh, when I learned about that, I started wondering about the whole claim that Christianity uh, or religion in general must be false because it's irrational. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, uh, so is science. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to our minds. It makes sense mathematically, but that's about it. So uh, that kind of destroyed my first argument against the idea of religion, and after that, I talk about what I was learning in biology and biochemistry, which is my own field, and the incredible beauty and complexity of, of even simple cells is just staggering, especially when you learn the details. And I just found it hard to just accept the idea that this was all accidental, this is all just, you know, from natural uh, events that occurred by chance. And I started thinking, well, I don't know, there must be something else going on. I didn't know what it was. I still didn't believe in God. I was, I've also always been fascinated by human beings, by the, the incredible, uh, power of the human brain and the creativity, imagination, art, music, humor, 
uh, science itself. All of this is is brand new in the universe, and it only find, you only find it in human beings. And I I was asking myself, what what is it? You know, what what caused that? How do human beings get to be the way they are? And I didn't have a good answer for that. Mm-hmm. So these these are some of the questions that were you know poking holes in my original. Uh, uh, wall of belief in, in strong atheism, and I was rapidly losing that. And, um, and then I began realizing that science has a lot of limits. There's a lot of things that science does not answer. And all scientists know this. The whole concept of scientism, which is the philosophical view that all questions can be answered by science, is not something that most scientists share because scientists know from their own experience that there's a whole range of questions, even questions about the natural world, that science is, is not able to answer. So at that point, uh, I, I guess you could say that, that that is the first part of the book and the first part of my journey. And what it left me with was a sense that uh, I really didn't know what was going on. And uh, I was no longer hostile to the idea of God, the idea of religion. I still had a long way to go. And the way I developed that part of my story was uh, I was I became open to people I knew who were Christians. Uh, one of them brought me to a church for the first time in my life. I was in my late 40s when that happened, and I was expecting a horrible thing. You know, I, I didn't know what to expect in a church. I'd heard all these horrible stories about, <laughs> you know, fire and damnation and brimstone and all kinds of things. <laughs> I, I was I walked in. I was absolutely terrified. I don't think I've ever been that frightened. You know, walking into a church <laughs> and and the pastor started speaking about love and that was it and i couldn't believe it and you know people shook my hand uh they wished me peace and it was very pleasant and i was very surprised and realized well i guess i really have been lied to uh you know it was it was not a horrible experience at all it was actually quite pleasant and I will say that since I became a Christian, I've been in many churches, many denominations, and I have never had anything other than a wonderful experience. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't just lucky, I think, <laughs> <laughs> that any any church you can walk into, especially if you're a diehard atheist, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a sure. quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Sigard. His book is titled The Works of His Hands. We'll take a break and be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I'm continuing my conversation with my guest, uh, Dr. Cy Garth. He is the author of The Works of His Hands. And in the book, he is, I should mention, a biochemist, and he shares what he learned and still learning during his uh, career as a scientist in search of purpose and meaning. He discovered Christianity, to uh, paraphrase C.S. Lewis, as the light by which everything else may be seen. His insights, offered in narrative and creative storytelling, provide a roadmap for reconciling science and faith, both for spiritual seekers and uh, peeking over the uh, the fence of the yard of agnosticism and those who are sitting on the pews looking outward. Uh, just before the break, we were talking about the first half of the book. In the second um, half of the book, you really um, uh, cover many of the issues and questions that are presented against God in the academic and scientific uh, settings and explain the foundations that um, are false on which they rest. Can you talk a bit about the second half of the book and how it fits with uh, your journey and others who might be seeking? Sure. Um, well, what happened was I, I 
I wasn't expecting to become a Christian at all, uh, even after I had kind of rejected my materialism and my, uh, uh, you know, my original atheism. I, I was kind of floating around looking at various things, you know, New Age stuff and spirituality in general. But uh, what happened was, and this is the last, this is covered in the last chapter of the first part. Uh, I first of all, I had a couple of dreams uh, in which Jesus Christ appeared to me, and I didn't know it was Jesus, it was a man, but those dreams were very powerful, and uh, they led me to wonder if perhaps uh, that was the answer, (laughs) you know, Christianity. Um, I decided to read the Gospels, and when I did that, I had never, of course, cracked the Bible before, but (laughs) at this point, I went straight to Matthew. And I read it, and it it seemed convincing to me. I mean, I didn't necessarily believe it, but it certainly didn't seem like a fairy story. It didn't seem like anyone had made that up. And then I read the Acts of the Apostles, and that read to me like actual history. It didn't, again, it didn't sound like this was some kind of a conspiracy to, you know, to fool the masses into (laughs) believing in in religion. It it, it sounded very real. And the story of Paul, of course, was, was very moving to me. Um, and so I was about, I was really thinking about this as a possibility, but I couldn't quite get over that threshold. I, I, my training had been too intense and too long. And, uh, I was actually dragged over the threshold as, as you mentioned in the introduction while I was driving one day, uh, by the Holy Spirit who, who came to me and, uh, it's described in detail in the book, but mm-hmm. basically I found myself preaching a sermon and to myself, and that sermon did not come from me. <laughs> I didn't even know some of the concepts that were in it. But when I was done, it was I was it was clear to me that that Christ is real, the Holy Spirit is real, and I became a Christian right there at that time. But now we'll get to your question because that caused a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I was going to believe in Jesus Christ. As a as a fully committed scientist, and and I didn't know any Christians. I I certainly didn't know any Christians in science, and I didn't know what to do. And I had a lot of questions I had to deal with, like you know, what about the Bible? Is the Bible true? Doesn't the Bible have contradictions? And doesn't the Bible say things that are not scientific? I had to understand the you know what about evil? What about all of these questions that you know I had always brought up myself when arguing with people who were religious and were trying to convert me. And, you know, I I had to answer those questions uh, as well to myself. And I did. And I found it surprisingly easy to do. And when I thought about it, I mean, one of the things that people often bring up is why doesn't God give me a sign? And sometimes when I tell people about the dreams and the experience driving that I had, they say, well, nothing like that has ever happened to me. Why doesn't God come to me and give me a sign? And the answer to that is that I remember once I had come to Christ that God had given me many signs in the past, all kinds of things uh, that had been pointing to belief in him. And I had simply ignored them. And in one case, I actually was felt emotionally moved by something that I saw and that seemed very much in tune with the idea of of God, but I just rejected it and I just chalked it down to, you know, some emotional uh, delusion or something that was affecting me. And I rejected that. I wasn't listening. I wasn't open. And it wasn't until, you know, my study of science opened me up that I was able to hear these calls to Jesus. 
And, and once I could hear them, I eventually was able to respond. So that was one question that I was able to deal with. In terms of the Bible, luckily I, I came across many Christians uh, who are scientists. Uh, I read a book called The Language of God by Dr. Francis Collins, who's now the uh, director of the NIH, uh, a famous geneticist, and who is an evangelical Christian and who actually I've come to know, and, and he's an amazing man. And his book, if nothing else, it showed me that I was not the only one. <laughs> I thought I was the only scientist who had ever believed in God. And then I, I discovered a whole universe of people, uh, mm-hmm. both living and in the past. I found out that almost all the scientists in history were Christian up until the last few decades, actually. And that includes Pasteur, my heroes, uh, you know, Alexander Fleming and uh, obviously, uh, the well-known ones like uh, Copernicus and, and uh, Maxwell and Faraday and Robert Boyle. These are all giants of, of early mm-hmm. science, and they were all not just Christians. They were devout Christians, and they wrote about Christianity. So all of this had been hidden from me, and I, when I learned it, I, 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 also, I also found out there were many Nobel Prize winners who were Christians, and I actually had met one of them, at least. I may have met two, I don't remember, but one I met. And um, the whole idea that, that no scientist can be a Christian, which is what I thought, I honestly thought that, I thought it was too contradictory, it's just nonsense, and uh, it's 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 what I call a big lie. It, it, it's well believed by many many people, especially younger people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's taught on some university campuses. Uh, unfortunately, I believe there are some professors. I've known a couple who will stress that if they're teaching biology and evolution, they'll say, "Well, you know, obviously this is not the Bible. You can't believe." in uh, in God if you're going to accept modern biology. And that's simply a false statement. It's completely untrue. I, I just love the fact that you're telling your story. And each uh, chapter, I should mention in the book, includes discussion questions. Uh, you have a comprehensive appendix where readers can find more extensive information. It's written for anybody who's ever been told that the realities of science call for the rejection of God, as you've just described. And it really is uh, an approachable book, as you mentioned uh, at the start of our conversation, that I would highly recommend. I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. I want to thank you for the book and for taking your valuable time to talk with us here today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. Again, the book is titled The Works of His Hands. Dr. Seigart is the author and is currently available in bookstores. In fact, who's the um, the publisher here? Kregel is the the publisher. A great read, and you should find some encouragement, those of you who have uh, family members and friends who seem like they're just outside of the, the possibility of the gospel reaching them. Be encouraged. Again, the works of his hands, Dr. Seigart. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Jeff Myers. He is the author of Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truth. The book is published by Cook, and he'll join us in the first hour of the program tomorrow. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Kim Erickson, Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. Her book is published by Moody, and she'll also join us in the first hour of Thursday's program. On Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. We've already started collecting stories I think you will enjoy, so I hope you can join us for that. Well, despite considerable public pushback, Washington state lawmakers have approved a comprehensive sex education curriculum and legislation for public school students 
that some parents say is tantamount to grooming. According to My Northwest, Republicans in the Evergreen state strongly resisted this measure, at one point even attempting to add more than 200 amendments to keep the bill from advancing. Conservative lawmakers, they contended that the material was not age-appropriate and that it usurps the parent-child relationship. Said uh, Representative Mike Steele from Clean on the House floor last week, I'm not sure why we're uh, rushing to remove the innocence of our youth. We put so much on them. I don't know why we think it's appropriate to put more, to put such weight upon their backs as such, at a such, rather, at such young ages. This is heavy, heavy material, end quote. Well, Democratic defenders of the legislation maintain that the bill is vital for children. The hard work that we put into this bill in both the House and the Senate is well worth it because it will improve safety for children statewide. The bill's sponsor, Democratic Senator Claire Wilson, says we must ensure that our kids have the tools and knowledge they need to recognize and resist inappropriate behavior. Well, around the country, particularly in political liberal states, sex edge curriculum and recommended resources that feature explicit descriptions of various sexual acts and cartoon images that appear pornographic have been contested by parents who don't want their kids exposed to it, prompting activism, including sit-outs, where children are withdrawn from school to protect the to protest rather the graphic sex ed. Also included in the controversial lesson is the promotion of the idea that some people might be born in the wrong body and that biological sex exists on a spectrum. Now, one Seattle resident who was a Republican candidate for state senator and an activist for the protection of children and women commented in an email to the Christian Post on Monday that influence. Uh, that influential interest groups appear to be calling the shots. Well, the Democrats in Washington are heavily funded by Planned Parenthood and their allies. Planned Parenthood helped develop the curriculum and is frequently mentioned in the curriculum as a resource. Planned Parenthood benefits when teens and young adults get contraceptives, STI testing, and abortions uh, from them. A new program of Planned Parenthood provides hormone therapy for transgender patients, and those hormones are expensive and lifelong, which is a huge benefit to Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood's business model, she went on to say. Kim Wendt, who's a Tacoma-area mom and co-founder of Informed Parents of Washington, said in a phone interview on Monday that the curriculum is being presented as necessary and full of vital tools for children. Her parent group believes that this is all part of a larger, more nefarious agenda to sexualize children. Backed by Planned Parenthood, and my guess would be the porn industry, she mused, noting that this is a worldwide movement being fought at the smallest, most rural school districts in the United States all the way to the United Nations. It's well-funded, and it's meant to sexualize our children all the way down to kindergarten. She recounted that Seattle-area police officers have gone on local radio stations and Having viewed some of the content of the CSA lessons, said that with their work in the Human Trafficking Division, the material mirrors how traffickers groom their children, their child victims, to enter the sex trade. She and uh, another activist were both present in the room until approximately 2 a.m. early Thursday morning when the bill was finally voted on. Said one, to me it was just obvious that it was an agenda. There were um, very reasonable amendments put forth, and every one of them was shot down, and it was on party line, and there was no negotiation. So it was obvious that there was something pushing the Democrats to push this through, she reiterated. So there's a lot of power behind it and money, too. They didn't get uh, get it through last year. They uh, took a lot of flack, so 
They made sure they got it through this year, end quote. Well, she urged parents to get involved at the school board level. And while a provision exists that teachers do not have to teach every lesson specifically set forth in the curricula, parents need to be engaged locally because truth and transparency comes from the state as to what is being taught is scarce, particularly given how sex ed lessons are being integrated with other subjects where students cannot opt out. So it's not just isolated within that one-hour classroom of health, for example. When the bill was being considered, members of the local Satanic Temple, dressed in head-to-toe black, rallied at the state capitol to support the bill. What that's about. Governor Inslee, a liberal Democrat, is expected to sign that legislation. Well, Washington House Republican leader J.T. Wilcox and Senate Republican leader Mark Schulzler, they announced on Sunday in a joint press release obtained by the Christian Post, that they were forming a committee called Parents for Safe Schools, which is committed to having the governor veto the bill and should be uh, and should he refuse rally Washington parents to overturn it through the referendum at the ballot box. Representative Wilcox says, I'm a father and a grandfather. These are young children. The youngest are still learning to tie their shoes. The state is going to take away parental rights and force a curriculum that is not age appropriate. It's outrageous, he said. Nothing we do in Olympia is more important than protecting our children. We will fight this with every tool at our disposal. Well, the um, for the referendum to appear on the November ballot, 129,811 signatures will have to be gathered by the 10th of June. So for anyone interested, um, keep in mind the, the timeline that's going to be necessary if, in fact, the governor signs it and parents decide they would like to have the opportunity to weigh in on it. My guess is most parents have no idea what was just passed. They listen to authorities and in um, Washington suggests that this is uh, necessary for these kids to have the tools they need to navigate our culture, uh, having no idea to what extent the uh, explicit nature of this material is. And as I mentioned, quoting from local police in the state of Washington, suggesting that the material mimics what they see used by those who exploit children for the purpose of sex trafficking. The fact that it even resembles in any way is unacceptable. So uh, there's going to be a fight on the hands of parents in uh, the state of Washington. And that will begin or end when the governor decides to sign or decides not to sign this legislation. But I would agree with the uh, two parents who were quoted that there seems to be a significant amount of uh, power, money and influence behind this effort. And it's not unique to the state of Washington It's happening all across the country and worldwide, their efforts to protect the innocence of children. But until parents are made aware of just what kinds of dramatic images and materials we're talking about, um, they may naively believe that these uh, educators and their allies in Planned Parenthood and elsewhere uh, have their children's best interest at heart. What you and I, I'm referring to those who are long out of uh, elementary and high school are uh, oftentimes char- characterized as sex education is a far cry from what's now being uh, used for that purpose. So if you're in the state of Washington, now's a good time to get yourself educated and follow what's happening there. We'll try to do the same here on the program. Once again, tomorrow, we're going to talk with Jeff Myers. Uh, he's the author of Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truths. The book is published by Cook. And we'll give away our final conference tickets to encourage the conference coming uh, to uh, Rolling Hills Community Church in Tualatin. That's this Friday night and Saturday. You can go to their website for all the important details. We will give Uh, That set of tickets away in the first hour of tomorrow's program. Great conference. 
and um, want to encourage you to be a part of Encourage. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Appreciate it. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.